0: All right, good morning, everyone. We're experiencing some technical difficulties today, so uh, that has us a little bit delayed. Class will be a little shorter for those of you watching online. We are in Has American Christianity Failed by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Uh, We're going to be taking a look here, especially today, at the idea... We're going to do a little bit on the idea of what makes a theologian, shift into the idea of love, and then from there into the idea of vocation. Before we begin... Let's have an invocation of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, And the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, by way of short recap, review, and then into a little bit of new material here, page 164, (coughs) we're looking at suffering here as this chapter, the how of good works, comes to be. And of course, one of our themes in this text, in this class, has been looking at um, suffering as a blessing and as a way, we don't often think this way, but suffering is a calling of God, a kind of vocation that God calls us to, and to suffer faithfully, that is to look to God in faith as we endure various crosses and afflictions that he lays upon us, this becomes a kind of worship, a kind of offering and sacrifice And so this is something we want to recover very much because it gives great meaning uh, to our suffering. And of course that meaning is already there, but we're becoming cognizant of it and perceiving of it, it, and that can be a very valuable thing. Now another effect of suffering is that it develops us as theologians. So that's the theme that is picked up on page 164. And if you remember, this comes from Luther. Of course, Luther is drawing on a richer, early, ancient tradition. But what makes a theologian? Now, in one sense, every human being is born a theologian because there's God and, uh, you know, what do you know about him or think you know about him? And then, then to narrow that down, as Christians, we know the one true God, baptized into the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, enlightened. And so, Christians are all the more properly called theologians, because we do know the one true God. But then, what develops and matures us? Luther here cites three Latin words, oratio, meditatio, and tentatio. Okay, oratio, prayer meditatio, meditation, but that's not like sitting lotus in a dark room chanting Om. Uh, that's, that's chiefly meditating on God's word, and there's any, any number of different ways to do that, but that's what's in view with meditatio, meditation. And then the last is tentatio, which is almost impossible to translate into English. The closest we usually get in English is something like temptation, but that really easily leads us astray tentatio uh, sometimes comes to us in german by anfechtung and i would i want what i want to do is point out two ways of thinking about this this tentatio in the major sense and the primary sense is affliction that god imposes upon us that is it's involuntary and it's passively received That's the chief way in which we talk about tentatio. Um, If I am clinging to God's word, and a bunch of people inside the church or outside the church are applying pressure to me to not proclaim that word of God, maybe they're going to have you lose your job, or they're going to put you in prison, or they're going to fine you, or maybe they're going to burn you at the stake and you cling to that word of God, that threat forms a kind of tentatio or onfectum. That would be a, a kind of threat or onfectum from humanity. Um, what would be one that's more spiritual in nature? Well, this would be the kind of spiritual assault that the devil imposes upon us. Now, usually that's conditioned upon circumstances in our life. You can think of like the book of Job, how it's, there are circumstances going on in his life, but behind those circumstances is the devil, and God's permitting the devil to afflict Job. And so, God can permit the devil to afflict us as Christians. Uh, God, ra- in a rather genius way, transforms the devil t- into our tutor, the one who teaches us theology, the one who drives us into the word of God, drives us into the arms of Christ. Luther says, I I have to give thanks to the devil because it's the devil who taught me theology. If he had not afflicted me and driven me so in my conscience to the point of despair, I never would have sought after God's answer in the scriptures as passionately as I did. And, of course, God's answer in the scriptures is the free forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus, this righteousness given to us apart from our own works, whatever form those works take. All right, so we're kind of grasping then this passive sense of tentatio or anfechtung and maybe some different ways we can think about or experience that. And then there's also a, an active way or a participatory way. And this is the minor sense. I don't know that Luther talks about it all that much in any systematic way. But it does show itself here and there in his writings and in his lectures. And here we're talking about things like spiritual disciplines that we Christians would freely embrace. Okay. Um, we, would, we would freely embrace maybe at the most fundamental level a daily prayer life of the small catechism and of and of course that traces all the way back through the history of the church all the way back through the history of the old testament people to the old testament scriptures but this idea of morning and evening prayer and then prayers at the meals okay and then starting to punctuate that with psalms or Bible readings or other devotions, that kind of thing. What we're doing there is we're forming a discipline. And as soon as you start to form a discipline like this, you're immediately going to be attacked by your flesh, by the circumstances, by the devil. So as you set about having this discipline and you face these attacks, you're going to face this tentatio or infectum. And as you persist and grow and develop and endure and overcome these attacks, you're becoming a better theologian. You're being driven further and further into prayer and the scriptures and these things that make you a theologian or develop you into a more mature theologian. Does that make sense? All right, so other common examples, um, fasting, giving of alms, and then other disciplines as well that are used, uh, and largely these come out of the monastery, the monastic tradition. Of Lutherans have no problems with these whatsoever as long as they're not viewed as earning salvation. And that is just other ways of mitigating the flesh. And I think this is actually a nice vista and horizon that we need to re-experience as a church in 21st century decadent America and that is, um, I've touched on this before, but just, as, just the second we have some kind of bodily impulse, we're running to satiate it. Um, I, I see something, I want to buy it. Before I even am thinking about it, my thumb is moving to the Amazon app <laughs> and clicking buy now. Isn't that a disastrous development when they added the buy now? You don't even have to put it in your cart. You don't even have to think about it just buy now. There it is. Okay. So, so about, about two clicks with your phone and you can have purchased something. So you've got an itch, scratch it. You've got the inkling of a headache time for four to six ibuprofen. Uh, you've got, um, a little bit of hunger time to sit down with the entire bag of Cheetos. Uh, you've got, um, a sexual urge, Okay, time to get online and look at things you shouldn't look at. These impulses of our flesh uh, just too frequently get gratified instantaneously. And so this is not a problem new to us. It's just what's new to us, if anything, is we've ceased to recognize that there's even a battle to be had. And this manifests in lots of addictions and that kind of thing where, um, you know, we're self-medicating, we're self-pitying. And the way to start fighting against this is by afflicting ourselves, and so by saying no to these bodily impulses and urges. And this forms a kind of discipline, but forms a kind of participatory tentatio or anfectang that then drives us deeper into the scriptures, deeper into theology, deeper into prayer. And these are the things that shape and form us into more and more mature theologians. Does that make sense? Now, I don't want to overstate that because that is a minor part of tentatio or onfecton. Um, It is a significant part, I would say, but it's the minor. The major is what God imposes upon us. Nobody, you know, how much suffering do you want to have in your life? I'll speak for myself, zero. And for whatever spiritually insane reason, that's kind of my expectation. So I'm greatly offended when I can identify three, four, five, six, seven major problems going on in my life. I'm gravely offended by these and I plead to God as if I were some great martyr and victim. When in fact, I'm at bare minimum getting only what my sins have deserved, but even then I know he treats me not according to my trespasses, and this is more merciful than I deserve. But then I realize that through these things, God is disciplining me as a loving father disciplines his son, that this is the only way he can cause me to mature or grow. If he left me on my own, I wouldn't. And that's where maybe you can, it's a little bit of a generalism, but when things are going the absolute best in your life, typically your reading of scripture, your prayer life, these other disciplines tank. They tank. So life is going better, spiritual life is going worse. So very frequently God imposes crosses and afflictions on us to reverse that trend so that What we experience is life is getting worse, and thus I'm driven into the scriptures, into prayer, into church. I've left out church, for crying out loud. Into uh, greater uh, devotional practice, greater passion as I sit in the pews and receive God's word. All of these things are God's doing, and this is the way then he develops us properly into more mature theologians. So this whole growth and development... Um, which we 'll talk about here in a minute as well, all right, so that 's prayer meditation, and then this untranslatable kind of tentatio uh, temptation or suffering let 's uh let 's pause there and see if you have any thoughts okay i see a I see a hand up here, but let 's um we 're going to raise the microphone to you so the entire world can benefit from your comment My, my only area of concern is like you said, what well, drives you to scripture. Then you get the other thing that pride says, okay, I'll read all the time mm-hmm. so that then I won't get tempted. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's just a circle. And then the other thing is, what about Job? He was offering sacrifices for his family and stuff from being mm-hmm. righteous and God says, oh, have you seen my servant Job? Yeah. So, yeah, so then you get that. So you're worried that if you become too holy, you become a target. <laughs> well you know as as you experience these things as you try to uh grow and mature in your life in christ you find all manner of afflictions and there and all manner of temptations to stop and all manner of uh, the flesh suddenly becomes a theologian and starts to argue with you and what are you trying to do here and etc etc we obviously we want to keep our theology absolutely straight that we're justified by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone that's impenetrable immovable everything else is is aside from that question and everything else is a fruit from that faith and free salvation in christ jesus and as we engage it yeah right it's wild because there's a lot outside of our hands but you just realize there's a lot outside of your hands anyway and would you rather be fighting the good fight, learning the lay of the land, the battlefield, strategizing, losing, but then figuring out how to win, enduring for your betterment, etc.? Would you rather take that path or would you rather take the path of sort of blindly being tossed from one wave to another clinging desperately to Christ, but understanding nothing that's going on in you or your life or anything else. I mean, I would assert both both ways can still land you in heaven, but one way is going to be infinitely more profitable for you and uh, infinitely more ultimately enjoyable for you, even though what I'm talking there about enjoy is this deeper joy that coexists with sorrow and in fact is a level deeper than the sorrows. This is why someone like James can say, Count it all joy when you fall into various temptations and trials. And Paul can say the same thing about our sufferings, that we can rejoice in our sufferings because we start to get a clue that this is God's medicine. So that, launch, that would launch us off on another topic. I won't go down there. But this idea, just this idea that what we consider the things we need to get rid of, Ah, this is a problem. I need to solve it. Ah, this part of my life, this part, this vocation that God has called me to, is is filled with affliction and suffering. I need to solve that, relieve that, take the problem away, relieve it. Um, this is the wrong attitude. This is the wrong attitude. There's nothing wrong with praying that God would lighten that lesson that resolve that. There's nothing wrong with praying that, but we need to recognize, be able to recognize with gratitude that this affliction must be exactly what I need. This is the Father's hand disciplining me, shaping me as a potter with the clay forming me into the image of his Son. And so there's a recognition then that the things that afflict us are medicinal. The irony here is when you're sick, you're receiving medicine when your body is afflicted you're receiving spiritual medicine that's ultimately where this leads Okay, please Uh, um, I often think of the verse in Philippians I think where it says he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it now if I I'm thinking rightly this is connecting what that work the contents of that work he's this mm-hmm. is flesh on the bones, right? This is what God's work is in us mm-hmm. to bring us more to know him and, quote, make us this theologian. Do I yes. have that right so I can... Yeah, Good. exactly right. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. Because it's like you opened this in the, your discussion of this, but I think of Christ going to the cross and the devil is thinking he's going to defeat him. Mm-hmm. this and God allows us mm-hmm. and God defeats the devil and then the opening of Job is God allows the devil to attack us mm-hmm. and he will over- will overcome through him yeah and the devil will be destroyed and then we realize in going through this we don't do it very well but Christ did it for us so it's completed in him. It yeah. circles back to him again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It always circles back. T- it begins with him, circles back to him. He's with us the whole way through. And with, um, with Job, of course, Job doesn't get everything right. But, he cl- but what he gets right more than his friends, who are getting it more wrong than him, is he clings to God tenaciously. And I think that this is a beautiful illustration of what Peter says, where he says, res- resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's exactly what the book of Job is. This is how to resist the devil. This is how to cling to God even when the devil is taking away systematically everything that you love, every blessing and and good thing that has come from the hand of God. Um, Resist the devil by clinging to God, blessing God whether he gives or takes away. And I think this is an amazing passage, don't you? Maybe you haven't stopped to think about it in a little while, but that is that... Peter says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I mean, Satan himself could be like, you know, flying around on his broomstick, look down at your house, decide today, you know, June 16th, is the day I'm going to go afflict you. You could have the devil himself, the same devil who tempted Christ in the wilderness, sitting on your couch, afflicting you. But what does St. Peter say? If you resist him, he will flee from you. We don't give ourselves enough credit. Now, the power isn't ours. The power is Christ. But Christ dwells in us. And thus, if we resist him, he flees from us. I'm sure you could say properly he flees from Christ in us. No problem there. Maybe that's a little more humble. But then again, that's not exactly how Peter says it. He will flee from you and so that's part of growing as a theologian to use luther's term um, growing spiritually maturing spiritually is that we learn to resist the devil in the midst of temptations and afflictions and uh, use these things leverage these things to draw nearer and closer to god trusting that eventually the devil's going to get tired or discouraged and leave so yes please well, I was thinking, uh, we had a conversation years ago, and you said sin has its own penalty in many ways. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you'll say, how did this come on me? And then you realize it was this indiscriminate sin that you may not have been considering a sin that leads mm-hmm. to a punishment yeah. of some kind. The problem is that even as we try, in my own life, we try to stay away from sin or succumb to it. Mm-hmm. Then we try to fix it at the end when we realize mm-hmm. it was wrong. Yeah. When the punishment is being heaped on us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We try to fix it. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is <coughs> just leave it in God's hands. Yeah, and, and there, I mean, if you recognize that you're suffering for something that you've done wrong and that this is the just penalty for your sin... Um, the way there is then to not receive that, like Cain, or like Saul, or like Judas. That is to receive that to your damnation, to sort of, or like Esau, I think, in, in as Hebrews mentions this idea of like, I'm sorry I got caught, and I'm sorry I have to bear this heavy burden, this impossible burden. Yeah. Uh, but rather to look and to say in your prayers, God, you are just in afflicting me this way. And it's a lesson that I needed to learn. And that's a lesson that I'm learning still. Walk with me as I learn this lesson so that I can avoid that in the future and bless me with wisdom and understanding through this, right? So that, I mean, there's an analogy to earthly things, so that I might be reformed uh, under this. Yeah. So that's, I mean, ultimately, so much of this is just instructive in terms of how we pray how we think about God, how we turn to God, how we pray, and how we endure the various things that occur to us spiritually. All right, everybody's okay? So um, one more point in regard, and I would commend this chapter to you, the end of this chapter, because it's just filled with scripture, and I want to move us along. Um, One more point, though. 165, the second paragraph here, written by Wolf Mueller on the top of 165, he says fourth knowing Jesus is with us in suffering and that suffering is a a gift from the ascended Jesus to show us his mercy and prepare us for the resurrection we then can find joy in our suffering. Acts 5.41 shows this wonderful joy in suffering. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. To rejoice at a beating seems strange to the world. But these disciples know Jesus and they know the Christian life is a life of suffering. So that gives us window into participating in the sufferings of Christ, as the scriptures say. Not having anything to do with atonement, but having rather to do with the reality that we are members of the body of Christ. And as the world hates and persecutes him, so it hates and persecutes us, and we're going to suffer with him. That's why Christ says to St. Paul on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting these people? Why are you persecuting my church? No, why are you persecuting me? Yeah. Okay, well, we could do more, but I want to move us along. I mean, that, that seems to be the case always with this, with this text, is there's always more we could do. But let's just jump over to chapter 8, where we're going to introduce love. And Wolf Miller's going to do this as an ex-evangelical coming out of American Christianity and the abuses of uh, love within that theology. Um, So we're going to see that. But I want to take a moment and just sort of lay a foundation for you that if you are interested in learning more, kind of going down to the sedes, the seat of this doctrine of love, biblically speaking, you can do, uh, I I think you can do no... uh, Well, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but go to 1 John. That's what I'm trying to say. 1 John is the epistle on love, if you remember. And it is wonderful, it is mysterious, it is thought-provoking, it is challenging. But 1 John is really sort of the biblical thesis on love. And then if you wanted to get a specifically Lutheran treatment of love, and indeed as any Lutheran treatment would, would have, you're going to have other church fathers mentioned along the way. Lutheranism, if it's anything, is not trying to do anything novel. It's trying to say, here's what the scriptures teach, here's what the 1500 year history of the church teaches, here's what we teach, these three things line up. That's, that's Lutheran, then I would, I would commend you to go to, uh, in, your, in your Book of Concord, which of course you, you have to have one of these along with your study Bible, essential text, um, but you want to go into the Apology, which is the defense of the Augsburg Confession. The Augsburg Confession is the main document. In a sense, everything else is commentary on the Augsburg Confession. The Apology is the defense of the Augsburg Confession. You have an article in here, Article 5 in the Apology, and its title is this, Love and the Fulfilling of the Law. So if you want to know what Lutherans, you know, this is the definition of what Lutherans believe, what Lutherans are, and you want to know what our attitude is toward love and the fulfilling of the law, here's where you want to go. Let me tantalize you with a section, with a segment. Okay, uh, this comes um, from paragraph 227, again in Article 5, Love and Fulfilling of the Law. Here again, the adversaries, that is the, the Romanists, will cry out that there is no need of good works if they do not merit eternal life. See, So Lutherans are saying, your good works don't earn your way into heaven. And then the Romanists are squawking, well, if you tell people that, they're not going to do good works. <laughs> <laughs> just a bad argument <laughs> all right we continue with the text of course it is necessary to do good works we say that eternal life has been promised to the justified but those who walk according to the flesh retain neither faith nor righteousness for this very reason we are justified being righteous we may begin to do good works and obey God's law. We are regenerated and receive the Holy Spirit for the very reason that the new life may produce new works, new dispositions, the fear and love of God, Hatred of lustful desires, or concupiscence, so broadly speaking, not just sixth commandment, but all sinful, lustful desires, and so on. This faith arises in repentance, and should be established, and grow amid good works. Temptations, there's the tentatio frame, and dangers... This is so that we may continually be more firmly persuaded that God cares for us, forgives us, and hears us for Christ's sake. This is not learned without many and great struggles. Beautiful. If it wasn't so long, I'd crochet it on all my pillows at home. (laughs) So I commend uh, First John to you as well as this uh, Article 5, Love and Fulfilling the Law, uh, for an objective theological treatment on the topic of love. Now, again, as Wolf Mueller introduces it here, um, we're going to see the problems with how American Christianity has used love. And then, as you can see from his opening line, how we might say that love is a dangerous word. And that's Wolf Mueller's opening sentence he continues we hear love and think gospel love after all is so nice what better thing in the world is there than love what higher pursuit than love but love paul teaches us is the essence of the law love is the fulfilling of the law and this is a quotation of saint paul in romans 13 10 all right um, so What's the problem in American Christianity? In American Christianity, very frequently, there's all this talk about, hey, you know, love God, love your neighbor, and everybody thinks, well, love is nice, nice is the gospel, so I must have preached the gospel. Well, if you've talked about loving God and loving your neighbor, you've actually preached the gospel? No, you've preached the law, the first table of the law, the first three commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, remember at the seventh day and keep it holy, are all about loving God. That's the first table in the vertical dimension. And then commandments 4 through 10, the next seven commandments, all have to do with loving your neighbor as yourself. And so in many churches in American Christianity, you know, the preacher is thinking and the people are thinking, well, we heard love. It must be the gospel. It must be nice. And no, in fact, that's the essence of the law. And these commandments, love God and love your neighbor, are impossible for us to keep. And in fact, point out our Sin. So it's very easy to hear sermons on loving God and loving neighbor and walk out of there in one of two states. Do you remember what they are? Despair. Despair is one. I'm not pulling it off. Woe is me. I'm not a Christian. I'm a hypocrite. And what's the other? Pride. Yeah, yeah. I heard it in a variety of different words. But pride is the other reaction of like, okay. Love God and love neighbor, check and check. What else is there for me to do? Because this is obviously too easy. You know, and so now you get invented, this, invented in the church, this neo-monasticism in American evangelicalism, which Wolfmuller is going to cite when we get to vocation. It's this idea of like, what's my ministry? Okay, I've already got, already got the Ten Commandments all covered. Love for God, check. Love for neighbor, check. What are my real good works? You can see how this this is profoundly proud, profoundly hypocritical, profoundly theologically ignorant, and then lends itself to an entire way of the church being, well, whitewashed sepulchers would be the language of Jesus. Good on the outside, rotten on the inside. All right. so jumping over to 169 second full paragraph Müller says or writes I've often heard Christians say you have to learn to love yourself before you can love your neighbor <laughs> this is absurd no one ever hated his own flesh Paul says uh, quoting Ephesians 529 we are by nature in love with ourselves exactly loving myself is the problem Self-care is the problem. Self-pity is the problem. (laughs) Everyone pities themselves. Everyone thinks, woe is me. I deserve better. Wolf Miller continues. We are by nature in love with ourselves. I'll prove it. When I'm sitting on the couch watching baseball and I get thirsty, I don't even think about it. I stand up, walk to the kitchen, get something to drink and go sit down. But if I am sitting on the couch watching baseball and my son gets thirsty and asks, Dad, could you get me something to drink? I moan and groan and say, during the next commercial, what we say in our house is, you have two arms, you have two legs. (laughs) I care for myself without even thinking. I care for my own family with all sorts of trouble. When the scriptures command us to love our neighbor as ourselves, they are commanding us, out of a love for self, and into a love for our neighbor. We must love and serve the people around us, just as naturally and unthinkingly as we serve and take care of ourselves. In fact, in order to love God and my neighbor, I must first be set free from the bondage of my self-love. Now we can see how the world has everything upside down completely, because the world is filled with this self-love, loving yourself, forgiving for yourself, caring for yourself, all of this stuff. It's all... Well, what is it? You remember the Latin phrase? It's the incurvatus in se, the self curved in on itself. Okay, so um, from this selfish love, and how does everyone else in the world serve me... We see that Christian love is altogether different. How do I serve my neighbor? That's why in the big brackets on the bottom of 169, Wolf Mueller writes, Christian love is sacrifice. You're sacrificing yourself for the good of another. You're getting off the couch, ruining. your sacrificing your enjoyment and relaxation for the sake of your son, in, in Wolf Mueller's example. Although I suppose a case could be made for loving your son by disciplining him to get off his own duff and get the root beer, right? Uh, Christian love is death. So Christian love is sacrifice. Christian love is death. That's a different way, and that's alien to the world. It's not attractive to the world at all. It's not attractive to our sinful flesh. But this is the way and calling of God. How do we know this? Well, you could grab something from 1 John, like, In this is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and gave his son as a propitiation for our sins so then what is love (laughs) at least from this angle and from the position of this verse love is the sacrifice of the father in giving his son the sacrifice of the son in giving himself love is sacrifice love is death and that becomes then a larger template for what Love itself is. Okay. Would you like to know more? First John. Go read it right after this class. You'll have a wonderful time. It's short. You can read straight through it in about 20 minutes, I think. Maybe faster. All right. So let's go over to page 170. And here we're going to look at the second paragraph again. Wolf Mueller writes, But the Bible does not only talk of my love for God and neighbor. It also talks about God's love for us. This is the sweetest gospel. Okay, now why I love this line is because Wolf Mueller has given us both sides of the coin. You have to be careful in American Christianity with the way the word love is being used. If it's our love for God, is that law or gospel? Yeah. Law. Is it if it's our love for our neighbor, is that law or gospel? Yeah. Law. So if a sermon's entire point is love God and love your neighbor, you have received an entire sermon filled with law, which is going to have a condemnatory effect. And properly speaking, that's only the preface for the preaching of the gospel. Jesus says, go and preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all nations in my name. And if the preacher has merely preached love for God and love for your neighbor, then he's stopped at point one. He's only preached repentance at best. And if he's done it clumsily, he might have preached self-righteousness and self-justification, which is inimical to Christ and his his word. Okay? Okay so when we talk about us loving god or us loving our neighbor law what if we talk about god loving us law or gospel gospel Gospel. Gospel. absolutely and that by the way is the baseline of the scriptures the baseline way of talking about god of love is god is love and god's love for man and when we're talking about man we're talking about sinful man and so we're talking about something that is unlovable not only unloving uncapable of returning love but unlovable because we're snot-nosed ungrateful rebels our every thought by nature is bent against god god says do this, and we say no. He says, "Don't do that," and we say yes. He says, "Man and woman," we say, "Ah, what other alternatives are out there?" Right? Anything he says, we say, "Let's see if we can do the opposites." Okay, that's the s. So, think of a holy, just, innocent, merciful, in the, in a in a profoundly good sense, simple, wholesome. God, and He's looking at rebels who want to do nothing but spit on this, despise this, tear this to shreds, and instantiate hell on earth. Here's the marvel of God's love that He would look upon us and say, I love them, and I love them in such a way that it's going to cost me everything to redeem them and to bring them back. And even though I do this for the whole world, I do it knowing full well that many of them are going to reject me even still and are going to hurt me even further as I've given this most profound gift of love. They're going to even reject and despise that, spitting upon the greatest thing I could possibly give and in so doing also damning themselves forever. Because if you don't love God in Christ Jesus, you'll never love God. That is God's most selfless, most loving, most incredible, unthinkable, unspeakable gift of goodness and revelation of his goodness. If you spit on that, you spit on the entirety of God. If you reject that, you reject the entirety of God. Because there's nothing more God than the Father giving his Son and the Son giving himself. And the Spirit crying out to you to be reconciled to your Maker, who is love. Okay, so love is the sweetest gospel. And I'm so glad that Wolf Miller puts this in here because that is the other side. And as we've said then, we can see the selflessness of God, that this is who God is. Right um, Sometimes we can get to thinking about the cross as something alien to God, something strange, and th- we can get some mileage out of that i mean there 's nothing wrong with that there are scriptures that speak this way, and um, but if we have only that side, that is the idea of like how strange for God to become man and how strange for God to die, and how he 's humiliating himself and how unnatural and how alien all of this is to who God is okay at that point we've started to distort we have started to take that theology a little too far i would argue because why the essence of god is love the essence of god is selflessness the essence of god is the father giving his son and the son giving himself that's who god is it's what it means for him to be god to be father and son it is his deepest identity And I'm not leaving out the Spirit intentionally. I'm just doing what the New Testament Scriptures do because who's the one speaking right now? That's the Holy Spirit, right? Who's drawing us into this understanding of God's loving Christ Jesus. All right, so love can be sweetest, purest gospel or love can be most difficult, impossible law. You have to be careful with it. And American Christianity is always blurring, mixing, mangling these things two together such that the love of God in Christ Jesus is lost, contaminated, and tainted. All right, so far so good? Okay. we got a few more minutes. Um, hmm. How about this? Because this does set up uh, vocation a little. Let's go over to 171 and let's look at this provocative subtitle. When sin becomes a good work. Wolfneather writes, American Christianity locates the work of God internally in our heart. It is then no surprise that they also locate the Christian life chiefly in the heart. Sanctification, they teach, has to do with spiritual things. On the positive side, quiet times, church services, and evangelism are the major ways I serve God. On the negative side, I maintain my holiness by keeping myself separate from the world, avoiding secular pollution. Wolfmiller continues. In the Middle Ages, monks cloistered in monasteries to keep themselves from the pollution of the world. They removed themselves from daily life, from marriage, family, and any dealings with money and politics. They focused on the inner life of prayer and meditation. There is a kind of neo-monasticism in American Christianity. Christians gather in their Christian ghetto with Christian music, Christian books, Christian movies, Christian friends, Christian coffee shops, Christian plumbers, and the desire for a Christian government and a Christian nation. If things keep going in this direction, we might soon have Christian cars and Christian sunglasses and Christian resorts where Christians can vacation without temptation and eat Christian hamburgers made from Christian cows and Christian cheese." all right well you can see uh you can see the humor there so um this i we we need to be careful um that that we don't fall into this trap of american christianity of defining good works differently than the scriptures define good works and i think that that's what you can subtly see happening here uh American Christianity starts to define good works as Are you separated from the world such that you're just enjoying these quote unquote Christian, Christian trademark things? Okay? They're drawing the distinction in the wrong place. That's going to be the case. So we should indeed come out of the world, be separate from the world, be in the world but not of the world. But how are we going to define that? we're going to define that in terms of doctrine and life, and we're going to define that and fill that with biblical data, but we're not going to create this artificial separation where, as Wolf Miller articulates, I've got my Christian car and my Christian movie and my Christian books, and I don't do any business with anything that isn't quote-unquote Christian. It's drawing the line in the wrong place. It's I. It's giving the wrong identity of what it means to be Christian. What would be the tell, the easiest tell? Well, in which chapter of the New Testament do you find this list about all this Christian stuff that you're supposed to do and participate in? Nowhere! In fact, you find um, a very clear articulation of what it means to be church and the kinds of things we don't do, but then what it means to be in the world and the kind of things we're permitted to do for example the difficult first century question of whether or not we can go to the market and eat meat sacrificed to idols or what happens when we go over to someone's house and they're serving for us a nice roast beef that was probably offered to zeus earlier in the day Um, what are we to do in these situations okay so these questions show us that we don't have to only eat christian beef don't ha- we don't have to worry about food sacrificed to idols because an idol is nothing. What we need to worry about in those instances is our neighbors. And that's where that question becomes nuanced. But you can see in a theology like this that's uh, given to us in the New Testament, there's not this sense of like, no, you need to cloister yourself away where you're only eating Christian cows. Okay? So Wolfmieler's point, well taken. And what we're going to do next week is we're going to start to articulate how it is that we are in the world but not of the world, and what shape does that take. And there's going to be two different ingredients that are going to bake this cake of Christian life in the world, and those ingredients are going to be uh, the Ten Commandments as the moral law, and then this uh, Latin word vocatio, which is a technical term meaning vocation or calling. We're going to talk about what is technically a vocation and what isn't, how American uh, mindset is wrong on this question. Um, But we're going to see then that God calls us to these unique positions and roles in life and then fills the content of that with His holy law so that we have, um, for lack of a better word, a job description for each of the roles God gives us. Uh, To use the language from your small catechism, a table of duties that's all i mean by job description a table of duties so that you can see how it is that god would have you conduct yourself during your temporary stay in this world all right that's all the time we have i'll hang out for questions if you have them the lord be with you